Morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, can I ask you to turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 is where we're going to be focusing our attention this morning. So Galatians 2, this is, I think, the fourth in our series through Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And the title I've given to this morning's message is Gospel Hypocrisy. Gospel Hypocrisy, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? Um, So, let's begin with God's Word, the most important part uh, of what we're doing here now. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, and that, by the way, is just the Aramaic name for Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, it is not normal for a big argument to break out during a church lunch. And in fact, I think in the 20 years I've been a part of Grace Church, I've not seen it happen at one of our church lunches, an argument breaking out in the middle. The the truth is we're all very happy when we're eating, and so it's the least likely place for it to happen. So we can perhaps only imagine the shock many might have felt at the church lunch that is described for us here in this passage this morning. Especially when, gazing over to the table where the commotion is happening, church members begin to realize this isn't just any two people in disagreement, but two of their most prominent and godly leaders, two apostles, no less. This is surely one of the most surprising episodes in all of the New Testament, with the Apostle Paul calling out the Apostle Peter in front of the whole church for denying the very gospel itself. Now already in this letter, if you've been around for a few weeks, we have seen Paul addressing the fact that false teachers have infiltrated the church, bringing with them a false gospel message, falsely teaching that the way to be saved and set right with God is by trusting in Jesus and adding a dose of human effort. Paul has already spoken in the strongest possible terms against those who teach a false workspace gospel. But this morning, it's a little bit different. He wants to tell the Galatians about an incident that happened in his own home church in Antioch when Peter and other faithful men who still taught and believed the gospel ended up denying that same gospel by their behavior. Last week, our focus was on the danger of legalism, of believing and trusting in a false gospel. This week, it's a bit different. Paul turns the spotlight onto the danger of hypocrisy, of believing and trusting the true gospel, but then denying it by our actions. Now, I want to reassure you, this passage this morning does contain encouragement for us as well. Encouragement to live our lives in step with the gospel, as it says in verse 14. But it delivers that encouragement by way of a big warning. 
A warning that reminds us that just as none of us are immune to falling into the legalism we've been talking about previous, in previous weeks, neither are we immune to falling into hypocrisy. It's a danger for all of us. And it's so important that as Christians we know what hypocrisy looks like, where it comes from, and how to battle it. And although this is only a short passage this morning, it actually addresses each of those things. And so this morning I've got four headings, four things that this passage reveals to us about gospel hypocrisy. We're going to see the nature of hypocrisy, the source of hypocrisy, the harm of hypocrisy, and then the cure for hypocrisy. So first of all, the nature of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy can rear its ugly head in many different ways in our lives. But here in Peter's case, it came to the surface in his choice of who to eat with. Antioch, Paul's home church, was a church full of Christians from many different places. Uh, Some of them with a very Jewish background, Jewish Christians, and some with a non-Jewish background, Gentile Christians. And and generally, they're all getting along really well. It's a wonderful picture of what God is doing in the New Testament church, bringing people together. Uh, And in verse 12, it says, Before certain men came to that church, Peter was there happily eating with everyone including the non-Jewish Gentile Christians. But then, when a particular group of men come from Jerusalem, and they have strong opinions on the need for Gentile Christians to become Jewish Christians, well, Peter draws back and separates himself from the Gentiles, fearing this new group, the circumcision party. Peter stops sharing meals with Gentile Christians. Uh, Now, from the perspective of an Old Testament Jew, if we go back into the Old Testament for a moment, eating with non-Jewish people was a big problem. It was a scandalous thing. Because according to the Old Testament, according to God's Old Testament law, the Gentiles and what they ate was unclean in the sight of God. The Jewish people really weren't meant to eat with them, not unless these Gentiles first became Jewish and got circumcised and started abiding by all of the food laws in the Old Testament. But since that time, much had happened. Christ himself had come and died and risen and commissioned the first Christians to go out and make disciples of all nations. And then subsequently, do you remember this? Peter himself was the one who'd been given a vision in Acts 10 from God, showing that now, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, in light of Christ's coming and his finished work, all of those old, temporary Jewish ceremonies and uh, ceremonial food laws no longer applied to God's people. Uh, That was precisely the point of what happens in Acts 10, where, if you remember this, Peter was praying, actually just before lunch one day, And in Acts 10, it says, He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, i.e. all of the animals that Jews previously had not been meant to eat. But immediately alongside the vision, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. You can imagine how shocking the situation was for Peter at that stage. Uh, in fact, immediately alongside, uh, immediately as he hears that vision and that voice from heaven, we can actually see his surprise because 
Uh, imagine what you would do if you hear a voice from heaven. You'd be pretty quick, I think, to do what it says. But so shocked is Peter, he actually refuses to do what God has just told him. Uh, but Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And then, of course, we read that even as Peter's wrestling with the meaning of this vision, men arrive at the door urgently requesting that he come and meet with their master, Cornelius, their Gentile Roman master. And the Holy Spirit says to Peter, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And so Peter willingly goes with them. And then standing not long afterwards in Cornelius' home, surrounded now by Gentiles, Peter says to Cornelius and his family, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now even more than that, let's just see Peter's clearness of thought and his courage here. Even after that, when he receives criticism back in Jerusalem because of what's just taken place with Cornelius... And actually, he was criticized by the very same people, the very same circumcision party who would later arrive in Antioch and cause him to stumble. But earlier in Jerusalem, Peter totally stood his ground and didn't waver one bit on the gospel. Acts 11 verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them. He told them about his vision and how the Spirit had fallen on the Gentiles with no need for circumcision. And he finished by saying, Acts eleven seventeen, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter stood his ground heroically. He defended his behavior towards Cornelius, which had been completely in step with the gospel, which only shines a sadder light on his subsequent hypocrisy in Antioch, as there he withdraws from eating with Gentile Christians. And this sorry tale, I wanted to go back through what happened in Acts to, to paint the contrast for us. This sorry tale that Paul now recounts, is a vivid picture of what gospel hypocrisy looks like. Peter knew better than anyone that salvation is by grace and grace alone for Jews and Gentiles. He knew that Gentile Christians did not need to become Jewish in any way in order for them to be accepted into God's family. Peter knows and believes the same gospel as Paul, the only true gospel that there is. But in Antioch, he chooses to behave in a way that deliberately hides his belief. He chooses to act like a hypocrite. Now, hypocrisy today, I think, is a word that gets bandied around maybe far too much. And often it's uh, associated, you hear it amongst politicians, don't you, with one side throwing the, the word hypocrisy at the other, and then it comes back to them the other way as well. Often hypocrisy, that word, is simply used to suggest that someone is not living up to their own ideals. 
that they're just failing to practice entirely what they preach. And the truth is, of course, that we all fall short of living up to our ideals. As Christians, we all fall short of entirely practicing what we say we believe. Uh, We want to resist sin. We want to honor God. We want to show Christ-like love to other people, but we often fail. We often fall short. But that in itself is not actually what hypocrisy is. The thing that Paul is talking about here, this word hypocrisy, it actually comes from the world of the Greek theater. It describes actors putting on masks to play a part. Hypocrisy means to deliberately play act, to intentionally act contrary to who we really are and what we really believe. So let me just stress that distinction again for us this morning. Hypocrisy isn't about sincerely believing something, sincerely having our beliefs, but just falling short of living them out. No, it's about doing something deliberately insincerely, playing false, dressing up to cover up what we truly believe. So one commentator writes, hypocrisy is the concealing of one's true character, thoughts or feelings under a guise, a disguise, implying something quite different. So when, when, when we act hip- hypocritically, we are not being ourselves anymore. We're playing the part of someone else. We're concealing and putting on a mask, masking over our true convictions, pretending we believe something different to what we actually believe. Peter's convictions about the gospel hadn't changed. He knew that circumcision and food laws didn't matter anymore. Uh, Paul reminds him, even you haven't been sticking to these rules anymore, Peter. You've been living like a Gentile, and rightly so. But then all of a sudden, he stops living by his convictions. And he play acts as if he believes something else. That is gospel hypocrisy. And it's not to be taken lightly. This is not a minor problem This is betrayal. Todd Wilson writes, it's a kind of treachery, like a husband who removes his wedding ring so he can play the part of a single man. Peter's not guilty of an honest mistake here. He is shamefully pretending, declaring by his actions that he believes another gospel entirely, even though that is not the case. The question then is, Why did Peter, of all people, one of the apostles, why did Peter fall into the trap of hypocrisy? How could Peter, of all people, end up behaving like this? And how could any Christian who believes and loves the gospel behave like this? Well, it turns out it's actually pretty easy. And it can happen very quickly to any of us if we're not careful. Which brings us to our second heading this morning and Paul's simple, straight-to-the-point explanation of why this happened. His answer is fear. And our second heading this morning is the source of hypocrisy. The source of hypocrisy for Peter, but so often for us as well, is quite simply fear. Have a look again at verse 12. He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter's hypocrisy was fueled by fear. Not by unbelief or a crisis of faith or a change of opinion or doubts about the gospel, but simply fear. He feared what certain people might think of him. 
He feared what the circumcision party might say to him when they saw him, as it says in verse 14, living like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Uh, Maybe he was even there that day eating a hog roast as they walked in. Certainly he was happily eating with uncircumcised, uncircumcised Gentile Christians, but his fear led him to pull away. He, at that moment, uncoupled his beliefs. Sorry, uncoupled his behavior from his beliefs. It's a bit like that um, scene you often get in a movie where someone is on a fast-moving train and they uncouple the rear carriages from the front ones. The, the movie that comes to mind, one of the greatest movies ever, surely, Paddington 2, even better than the first one. And, um, and, and the train becomes uncoupled. And so the, the front of the train carries on on the track it's meant to be going on, but the other half of the train is suddenly diverted off along another track. And if you've seen the movie, Paddington there, bless him, is there extending his extendable ladder to try and get back onto the right train, but, but the trains are diverging and splitting apart pretty quickly, no longer going in the right direction. See, at this moment... Peter allowed his behavior to become uncoupled from what he actually believed. He knew it wasn't right, but the fear of man took hold of him. And it wasn't the first time this has happened to Peter either. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter was so afraid of what even a lowly servant girl thought of him that he backed away and denied being associated with Jesus. And now, once again, he is afraid of what these men from Jerusalem might think of him. And so he draws back from being associated with his Gentile brothers and sisters. Peter runs away again from his convictions. And actually, the term that's used for drew back in verse 12, it was sometimes used to describe a military withdrawal. Peter is knowingly running away from the battle with his tail between his legs, waving a white flag of surrender. But here is the thing, before we judge Peter too harshly, if if this can happen to an apostle, it can happen to us as well. And if you're anything like me, it happens on many occasions. There have been many occasions when I have backed away from opportunities to live and speak for Jesus Many occasions when I have deliberately behaved in a way that denies I belong to him at all. The fear of man, that's what this is, the fear of man is a powerful and a dangerous thing. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. It sets a trap for us and takes us captive. When we start doing something or stop doing something else out of an overwhelming desire to please people, Rather than God, then we are bowing down to the fear of man. We are bowing down to an idol, no less so than the Philistines bowing down to Dagon in a foreign temple. There's really no difference. And when the fear of man supersedes and replaces the fear of God in our hearts, when we become more concerned with what other people think of us than with what God thinks of us, we are likely to deny the gospel just like Peter we will probably begin to act like hypocrites, masking our true and godly convictions and play-acting instead, suddenly taking on a part like we've, we're, we're acting in a show. 
play-acting as someone else, implying by our behavior that we believe in a quite different God or a quite different gospel, or even implying by our behavior that we believe in no God whatsoever. Another thing important to recognize here is that this fear of man isn't always just a kind of knees-knocking, terror-filled sort of fear, a fear of people who might hurt us or mistreat us or people who intimidate us. It can also be found in an inordinate desire to impress very nice, non-scary people, people that we love and are at ease with. I'm looking out this morning on a whole room full of very nice, non-scary people. But some of my most frequent battles with the fear of man come in an inordinate desire just to impress and please all of you. You're not scary. And I'm certainly not afraid that you're going to hurt me. Well, not most of you anyway. Uh, But I'm afraid that you might not approve of me so often. So often in my mind or in my heart, I'm afraid that you might not like me as much as I want you to or praise me or think well of, as well of me as I would desire you to. That is the sin of people-pleasing still at work in my heart. And the problem is, as we learned back in chapter 1, verse 10 a few weeks ago, last week even, people-pleasers don't make good servants of Christ. People-pleasers make good hypocrites. We can't simultaneously make it our aim to please both God and other people. And the truth is, we will love people best and we will serve them best when we stop trying to impress them and we set our eyes instead on unashamedly pleasing Jesus. So let me just pose a few questions at this point before we move on. A few questions for us to consider. Uh, And maybe when we get around to our next home group time, there could be things we talk about together. First question, do you struggle with the fear of man and the desire to people please? And uh, as is often helpful, sometimes in an exam, they kind of give you the the answer to the first question, just to show you the kind of thing they're looking for. Uh, So I'll give you the answer to this one. The answer is yes, um, but hopefully you can see it. Do you struggle with the fear of man and the desire to people please? Yes. Okay, but where is people pleasing and the fear of man most prominent in your life? When are you most tempted to compromise and reach for a mask to cover up your faith? And in what ways does your desire to please people hinder your ability to serve Christ? And I'll I'll share those afterwards if you like, send them around. They're questions for us to ponder and give time to thinking over. But the other question I'm sure many of us will be hoping for a more immediate answer to this morning is, how can we actually go to war with this and battle this ugly, besetting sin that, if we're honest, still lurks within all of our hearts. Well, fortunately, Paul's words don't disappoint by leaving us to work out the answer to that question all by ourselves. No, there are actually two doses of medicine here in this passage, which we're going to look at under our uh, our third and fourth, our final two headings this morning. Both of these are powerful tonics given to immunize us against succumbing to the level of fear and people-pleasing and hypocrisy that Peter did here. The first of them comes in the picture that's painted in this passage of the great harm that hypocrisy brings. It's a bit like that 
horrible and grotesque picture, and uh, many of you perhaps have seen it, I guess many of us just from a distance. You go into the post office or the newsagent, you look across to where the cigarettes are, and they put those horrible pictures of diseased and blackened lungs on the packets, put there to dissuade you from smoking, because that's what smoking will do to you. And Paul shows us here an equally, or if not more, disturbing and grotesque picture of the rapid harm that unaddressed hypocrisy can have on us. So third heading this morning, the harm of hypocrisy. And we see here that hypocrisy is harmful both to the hypocrite themselves and to the people around them. First of all, Peter himself stood condemned, verse 11. Peter's actions were wrong in the eyes of God. Whether or not they were wrong in the eyes of the people he was trying to impress, before God, Peter stood condemned. He hadn't spoken a false gospel. He hadn't taught a false gospel. But in withdrawing from eating with the Gentile Christians, he was very much enacting a false gospel. And God is passionately opposed to false gospels, however they're promoted. Peter's actions have put his own witness to the gospel in jeopardy. And he'd also put the people around him in jeopardy as well, dangerously so. Paul says in verse 13, the rest of the Jews, referring to the rest of the Jewish Christians in Antioch, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter's hypocritical behavior perhaps especially because he was a prominent leader in the church, was like the first domino going over, bringing down a whole load of other Christians in its wake. Peter's example influenced many others in turn. In the words of Philip Ryken, suddenly observing Old Testament dietary laws was all the rage. Peter has started a new fashion, and it's a terrible one. Peter's ill-thought-out behavior starts a trend and a split right through the middle of the Antioch church. And even Barnabas was led astray. You could almost sense Paul's shock that even Barnabas would be drawn into this. Barnabas is perhaps his closest friend, his missionary partner, the one who had stood up for Paul and vouched for him right from the very start before the other apostles in Acts 9. Even Barnabas was led astray. Todd Wilson writes, we can think of hypocrisy as a virus. It needs human interaction to survive. Indeed, it spreads and thrives on contact. And when it finds the right environment, hypocrisy can go viral and infect a whole community. Most of us, like the rest of the Jews in Antioch, need just a bit of exposure and the virus will spread. We must realize then, he says, the power of our hypocrisy to harm others. Playing the hypocrite is doing more than setting a bad example. Your hypocrisy and mine can actually compel others to stray from the truth of the gospel. Hypocrisy is a super spreader plague if left unaddressed. Especially because I think we are all more prone to following other people's examples, even over what they might say or teach us. Um, those of us who are parents already see this play out in our homes, don't we? Our children follow our example far more than they follow what we teach them. I wonder if you ever found yourself saying to your, one of your children, 
if you have them, you ever said to them, who on earth taught you to behave like that? Who on earth ever taught you that it was okay for you to do that? We have never taught you that you could behave like that in this house. But then, maybe after a few minutes, you've simmered down, then you stop quite often and you realize, I never said they should behave like that, but they've seen me behave like that. And they are copying me. It works beautifully when our example matches up to what we teach. But when we behave hypocritically, when we tell our children to behave in one way and we behave in entirely another way ourselves, or when actually perhaps we're... Here's another, another risk, another problem. Maybe we're actually play-acting being a godly, vibrant Christian when we're at church and when we're with other Christians, but then the mask comes off at home and we never talk or think about or apply the gospel or celebrate the gospel in our homes, then even if no one else in the church is seeing it, our children will see the hypocrisy and will be damaged by it over time if we leave it unaddressed. Again, let me be really clear. This isn't an issue of whether our children do or don't see our sin. They will. Of course they will, and they do. The issue is, do they see us dealing with our own sin like gospel-believing Christians? Do they see us quick as parents to be convicted and to repent, to seek forgiveness, sometimes directly from them, if we've sinned against them? Do they see us freshly and visibly grateful to God each day for his marvelous grace? Do they see us eager for them to hear about that same grace and see us modeling that same grace towards them each day? There is nothing hypocritical about parents sinning and repenting and striving to grow in grace each day. What won't work is an insincere pretense. Now, returning to the situation here in Galatians 2, we can also see the harm that is caused by hypocrisy, especially when someone in a position of church leadership is involved. You think of how many church leaders... We hear about them in the news, have destroyed their witness and their years of faithful teaching by allowing unchecked and unchallenged hypocrisy to grow and multiply in their lives. Those of us in any form of Christian leadership must be held to the highest account, not just for our teaching, but for our behavior in this area as well. 1 Timothy 4 verse 16, Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So two things, watch your teaching, but watch yourself. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. When leaders fail, whether in what we teach or how we live, and we're unrepentant, we risk not just making shipwreck of our own faith, but of potentially seriously damaging the faith of others as well. And so with all of this in mind, it's no wonder that Paul felt duty-bound before God to stand up to Peter and issue a public rebuke. I opposed him to his face, he says, before them all. Most often when when we're aware of another Christian caught in sin, we should go to them in private. And we should go with great gentleness. We should go with questions, not with uh, accusations or thinking that we've got it all right in our heads already. But sometimes a public rebuke is necessary, especially in the case of leaders, because of the influence that just one leader's sinful example can have on many others in the church 
if left unaddressed. Again, it's not, let me be clear, that we should expect perfect leaders. If that was the case, we are in trouble. And we have no qualified leaders in this church, least of all Pete and I. Jesus is the only perfect leader. But we need leaders who are committed to living out the truth they claim to believe and who are humble and open and vulnerable to receiving correction when we falter. Whether that's uh, stumbling in doctrine or behavior. And to be fair to Peter, though his sin was serious, he responded well to Paul's correction. So what we have here is two examples of good leadership. We have Paul showing us one vital aspect of good leadership, challenging hypocrisy when he sees it. That takes courage. And we have Peter showing us an equally valuable mark of a good leader who, when confronted with his own sin, wholeheartedly repents and I think undoubtedly would have thanked Paul for being such a loving friend. The relationship between these two apostles, it didn't end on this day. It wasn't severed by this confrontation. I suspect they came out of it even closer after this than ever before. And they certainly spoke highly of each other after this. Hypocrisy then is harmful, but its damage can often be undone when there's a willingness to genuinely confront it and repent of it. No sin is too great for us to turn back to Jesus. Maybe it's this morning to turn back to him. We can be forgiven and we can move forward with him. But what finally is the ultimate preventative cure for hypocrisy? What is it that will help us and guard us from falling headlong into this in the first place? Well, that's what we're going to address in our fourth and final heading this morning. Here is the cure for hypocrisy. And here I just want to draw attention very simply to what Paul says at the beginning of verse 14. Now, he's, he, we've said this in previous weeks. He is going to go on to expand this cure this cure for both legalism and hypocrisy uh, in, in passages to come and in weeks to come. It's about what much of Galatians uh, is about. We're going to be taking a massive dose of gospel medicine in next week's passage especially. But for now, he simply identifies the cure like this. He says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I wonder, have you ever noticed how easy it is when you're walking somewhere, but you're looking down at the ground, how easy it is to veer off course? to veer off from the straight line that you're trying to walk along. Uh, maybe you're attempting to read something on your phone. Uh, maybe you're trying to write a message. Maybe you're just uh, keeping your head down because it's raining and you don't want the rain blowing in your face. And then when you look up after a minute of walking, you realize you've veered quite a bit off course. Uh, this happens to me regularly, especially on the big playing field uh, that's not far from our house next to Barley Close School. Uh, actually, Ash and Emily's house look over it, so I've often thought, I wonder if they're looking out at this moment and they see me sort of looking down and weaving. Um, but you go into this big field, there's no path really, it's just, so all you can see beneath you is grass, and the exit is one tiny gate at the other end of the field. That's the gate you're aiming for. But if you don't keep your eyes on it, it's so hard to keep walking a straight line across that field to get to it. It's a small and a narrow gate. And so invariably, I walk across that field in the morning looking down at my phone and try as I might to walk straight without looking. I can't do it. 
And so I'm constantly having to look up again, set my eyes on the gate in the distance to readjust and get my bearings and make sure I'm going in the right direction. Now that walk across the field is a lot like the Christian life. The truth of the gospel is like a straight and narrow path, but we're prone to veering off course from that truth. Sometimes in our belief, other times, like Peter, in our behavior. And that's what Paul saw Peter and Barnabas and others doing in Antioch. They were going off course from the truth of the gospel. They had taken their eyes off grace. There's the gospel. Peter, there's the gospel, Paul would say to him, but you're going like this. You've been looking down. You've been worrying, Peter, about what other people think of you, and now you've gone off course. So what's the remedy? What's the cure? Well, would you believe me if I said the remedy was gospel orthopedics? It's a new one, gospel orthopedics. Uh, It's just that that word that's translated here, in step with, literally means to walk with straight feet. Orthopedeo is the word, straight feet walking. It's where we get our word then, our English word orthopedics from. And so for the medically minded amongst us this morning, we could, we could render Paul's words, I saw that they were not walking orthopedically. That is in a straightforward gospel way. Another author it reminded me of this week is the orthodontist. And some of you, um, well, maybe many of us have been to the orthodontist sometime in our lives. Some of you maybe recently. You go to the orthodontist to get your teeth straightened out. And the gospel is a bit like a spiritual orthodontist, although much more pleasant. The gospel, first of all, straightens out the biggest mess of all with us. The biggest mess between us and God. But then we keep going back for more appointments so the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, can go on straightening us out in our thinking and our doing each day. Bringing everything more and more into line with the message of God's grace. The one thing that we're tasked to do is to keep attending appointments, to keep on in the power of the Spirit, putting back in our gospel retainer each day. Or to return to my field analogy, we're to keep our eyes up and fixed on the gospel, on that narrow gate, that way of salvation, as we walk in step with the Spirit each day, reminding ourselves and reminding each other of the good news That though we were once guilty and condemned before God by our sin, we have been pardoned and accepted by sheer unadulterated grace, by God's free and unmerited favor in Christ, reminding ourselves it's not by any merits in me, any good works, but solely on the grounds of Christ's death in my place. Peter hadn't gone off course Peter hadn't just gone off course in his outward behavior towards others. Beneath all of that, he had gone off course in his own heart. He had forgotten that he himself had been justified completely by faith in Christ. And so he didn't need to worry about what Jewish visitors or any man might think of him. He had forgotten he didn't need man's approval because he already had God's. So the big question we need to take some time asking ourselves in response to all of this today is where are the areas in my life where I'm not walking in step with the gospel right now where in my attitudes and actions am I not being straight-footed 
with regards to living out God's truth. And here again, some more questions, and I will share these afterwards. Is it that I celebrate genuinely the liberating power of God's forgiveness in my life, but I fail to set others free by granting them that same forgiveness? Is it in the way that I say my eternal hope and home is in heaven, but in practice I use my time and money like really this here is all that there is? Is it in the fact that I accept that I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, yet I find myself seeking comfort in my own performance rather than in what Christ has done? Is it in the way I confess to being a member of God's family, but I neglect to meet regularly with my brothers and sisters each week? because I've committed myself to doing too many other things? It, could it be in the way that I admit, I admit no one is righteous and that we all need God's grace, but then I treat some people like they're far worse than others. And I even treat some people like they're entirely beyond the reach of God's grace. Bryce Morgan says, he writes, We can declare freedom in Christ and yet live like we are still in bondage to sin. We can confess that the price has been paid and yet still work to pay off our debt. We can admit to the reality of God's mercy and yet still live like one who is condemned. We can proclaim grace but still stand in judgment over others. We can testify that Jesus died for us and yet failed to live for him, that he identified with us and yet in our actions failed to identify with him. Whether we recognize it or not, each of our lives is like a living sermon, instructing and influencing others, revealing to them, as much by our conduct as our confession, what we really believe about the Lord Jesus, about the gospel. Galatians is this reminder given by God of how easy it is to drift into both legalism and hypocrisy. But Galatians also gloriously reminds us that God is passionately committed to bringing us back again and again onto the straight gospel path. God patiently administers his spiritual orthopedics continually throughout our Christian lives. God invites us to return monthly, weekly, daily, hourly, and moment by moment to rest in the good news of his all-sufficient grace. There is, I promise, great comfort here in this passage, and hopefully we've received some of that comfort this morning, especially for those of us who struggle, like me, with sometimes acting hypocritically. Praise God for his grace to Peter. Praise God for his grace towards us and for his grace towards every Christian who finds themselves wandering again off the path of grace. Let us, in light of his promise to keep bringing us back onto that path, let us keep our eyes fixed on him and strive to live our lives in every way in step with the truth of the gospel of his son. There is no safer, happier, more loving and more Christ-glorifying way to live than that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your gospel. Lord, that rescues us from every sin, including this sin of people-pleasing and the fear of man and hypocrisy. Father, we thank you that you provide a way back from even the greatest hypocrisy in our lives. Lord, that the, the door of repentance is open to us, always open. 
and open again this morning. Oh Lord, forgive us if we have wandered astray. Oh Father, we thank you this morning for setting our feet back upon the gospel path. Please help us as we continue to battle this sin of people pleasing in our hearts. May our lives be a testament to your glorious gospel of grace. For the love of those around us and for the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.